The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The words that open chapter 8 are a blessed promise from God to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ have placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save them from their sin and from the wrath of God. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord, right? Christians have been set free from the guilt of their sin. Christians have been set free from the enslaving power of their sin. We have been delivered from the curse of the law, delivered from the wrath to come, delivered from the bondage of death and corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What a great salvation. What a great salvation. Paul now has then taken opportunity through this letter to explain to us the conditions under which such a tremendous deliverance such a great salvation, the conditions under which it is made possible. In chapter 4, that salvation comes through justification. We are forgiven of our sin. We are declared to be righteous. That through the means of faith alone, apart from the works of the law, and having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, that justified status, only possible due to the imputed or credited righteousness of Jesus Christ. His perfect obedience and satisfaction of the law's demands is given freely as a gift of God's grace through the means or the instrumentality of faith. What a gift. Amen? In chapter 6, that free gift, only possible through our union, our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ that we are Enter, that we enter into through faith, a union whereby we are identified with him in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. It's a union through which we die to the power of indwelling sin. That's chapter six. It's a union through which we die to the condemning authority of the law. That's chapter seven. It's a union through which we are set free from our slavery to sin. God condemned sin in the flesh. And in chapter eight, it is a glorious liberty from slavery to sin, secured for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But that grace of God, the grace of God that brings salvation, is a gift, brothers and sisters, that not only transforms the status of the one who is put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but rather that grace of God, that gift that brings salvation is a gift that transforms the very life of the one who has placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not just a, the giving of a status. It is the transforming of a life. Do you see? Many today, many today believe that salvation is just a decision that you make. I'm going to walk that aisle. I'm going to pray that prayer. I decide today for Jesus Christ. And then that's it. That's it. I am saved. And that's the extent of it. That's not the, the salvation that we see in the Bible. That's not the salvation that we see in the Bible. The grace that has appeared to all men teaches us to deny ungodly lusts. It transforms the life. It's not simply transformative of our status. 
That then should compel us to see our salvation as not merely impacting our future destination, but a salvation that profoundly impacts our present experience. The great blessings of our salvation secured through the person and work of the Son are afforded, those blessings afforded in the present for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. We are those who have been united to Jesus Christ. In our union, we have been raised together with him. And having been raised with him, we are to walk, we will walk in newness of life. God condemned sin in the flesh. That's last week, right? God condemned, condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's on this point. That Paul again now introduces the metaphor of walking as a way to describe living your life. Those who are in union with Christ are raised to walk. They're raised to live in newness of life. The seed of Abraham, chapter 4, are those who walk in the faith of Abraham. Faith is not a momentary thing. Faith is a prolonged thing. Faith is a steadfast thing. Faith is a persevering thing. Do you see? Those who walk in the faith of Abraham are the seed of Abraham. God commanded Israel that they should walk in his ways and keep his statutes. Paul says that you were once in darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk, live your lives as children of light. We are commanded to walk in love, to walk in wisdom, to walk in truth, to walk in joy, to walk in faith. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walking, then, is a metaphor for the way in which you choose to live your life. Walking, a metaphor for the way in which you choose to live your life. The Bible conceives of two paths along which you must choose to walk. The Lord himself describes these two paths as the broad way and the narrow way. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, listen. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by that way. Because, verse 14, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Notice, think with me. There are two gates, the wide gate and the narrow or the restrictive, the difficult gate. There are two ways, the broad way and the narrow or the difficult way. There are two groups, the many and the few. There are two destinations, life and death or destruction. Just like there are two kinds of builders, wise and foolish. There are two kinds of foundations, rock and sand. There are two trees, good and bad. There are two fruits, good and bad. There are two paths that you can walk. The gospel demands a choice. The gospel demands your verdict, so to speak. The path to life is narrow because there's only one. There's only one. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. The path to life is difficult because it's a path of self-denial. It's a path of daily taking up your cross and following him. The path to destruction, the path to death is broad. It encompasses every other way that a man can walk. 
Not the one way, it encompasses every other way. The Lord told Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments. What does it mean to walk in his ways? means to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments. God says, listen, if you take any other path, if you walk along any other way, you will surely perish. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. Choose life. Choose life. So the illustration of walking suggests a journey, doesn't it? We're all on a path. We're all on a journey. We are to regard ourselves as being on a journey. That journey begins in a very specific place. The one walking progresses step by step along a path toward a destination. He takes steps with a goal or with a destination in mind. The term walking, the very term suggests a progression, doesn't it? A progression. Progress toward a goal. Progress toward a destination that takes place over time. Sounds like sanctification, doesn't it? Notice that Paul doesn't say riding. <laughs> doesn't say right. He doesn't say floating. He says walking. The fact that he refers to walking then suggests what? Suggests effort. Suggests effort on our part. Perseverance, endurance, steadfastness, continuance, diligence, even zeal. Not simply one decision at the outset of a journey but the steadfast commitment to continue walking along the path in faith until you reach the destination. Do you see? Now, in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, Paul's concern for the Christian is twofold. First, Paul's concern is with the manner in which that walk is conducted. The manner in which that walk is conducted. Secondly, Paul's concern is with the purpose for which that walk is conducted. Manner and purpose. First, Paul's concern, verse 4, is the manner in which we walk. If we follow Paul's metaphor for the Christian life, then the Christian's walk, the Christian's journey, begins with regeneration. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If we're following Paul's metaphor, then the Christian's walk, the Christian's journey, begins with regeneration. Ephesians chapter 2, look there beginning at verse 1. If you're a Christian, you can say amen to this. You know this is true. Verse 1, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Praise God. The one who is dead in sin, this is interesting, the one who is dead in sins, that one who is dead walks in a characteristic way. It's dead man walking, he's like a zombie. Right? He's a zombie. When he is born again or made alive, 
He's made a new creation in Christ. He turns from his sin. He puts his faith and trust in Christ and he is justified. That one who is justified at that moment in union with Christ, he begins a new journey along a new path. He begins a path in union with Jesus Christ and he walks now in a new way. That former walk along that former broad road to sin is a path, verse two, in which he formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now notice with me, notice the characteristic manner in which the spiritually dead zombie man walks. He walks according to the world. You see that in verse two, according to the course of this world. He walks according to the devil, according to the prince of the power of the air, and he walks according to the flesh. Verse three, in the lusts of our flesh. He walks according to the world, the devil and the flesh. Now he walks that way. He walks that way because he is by nature a child of wrath. Verse three, he walks in a manner then that accords with his nature. He walks in a manner Think with me. He walks in a manner that accords with a principle or a standard for his conduct, namely the flesh. A principle or a standard that includes the indulgence of his lusts. That's the principle. That's the regulating standard that governs his walk. Now, Paul uses the very same preposition back in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, to contrast that walk with the walk of a Christian. The one who is dead in sin walks kata according to the flesh, just like the man in Ephesians chapter two. The one who is dead in sin walks according to the flesh. The Christian who has been made alive in Christ walks kata according to the spirit. Notice the manner, Romans 8, 4. Notice the manner in which they walk. They walk according to or after the flesh, and they walk according to or after the Spirit. And we see the same language used, for example, in Mark chapter 7, verse 5, when the Pharisees uh, encountered the disciples eating bread with unwashed or unclean hands. The Jews would wash their hands in a ceremonial way, observing a tradition that was instituted by the elders. Okay? So they asked the Lord, when they encountered the disciples, they asked the Lord there in Mark chapter 7, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? The Pharisees found fault because the disciples were not walking in a manner that was consistent with their tradition. They were walking or living in a manner that was inconsistent with their tradition. What was their code of conduct? Their tradition. The way the disciples were walking, they were walking according to a code of conduct that was not represented by the traditions of the elders, right? Multiple times in Jeremiah, Israel walked according, not according to the dictates of God's law, they walked according to the dictates of their own heart. Israel inst insisted on walking according to their own plans. Israel refused to walk according to the law of God. They walked in a way that conformed to a standard, and that standard was their own flesh. In Romans chapter 8, verse 4 then, 
Paul defines the manner in which a Christian is to walk by contrasting two different standards or principles of conduct. One standard, one principle, serves the interests or desires of the flesh. The other standard serves the interests or desires of the spirit. Christians walk, brothers and sisters, Christians walk in a manner that accords with the interests or aims of the spirit. Lost men, dead men, walk in a manner that accords with the interests or the aims of the flesh. Two contrasting and contrary paths. Two contrasting and contrary standards. Two contrary and contrasting desires. Two contrasting and contrary wills. Two contrasting and contrary masters. Two contrasting and contrary aims. Two contrasting and contrary destinations. Verse 13. For if you live or walk according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Two contrary and contrasting destinations. These two ways of walking are mutually exclusive. They are entirely and utterly opposed to one another. What communion has light with darkness? What fellowship has Christ? What accord has Christ with Belial? Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Listen, I say then, Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. These two are mutually exclusive. They are opposed to one another at every point. Walk in the spirit. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now notice with me, and thinking about that walk, the manner of your walk is not a contrast between slavery and freedom. It's not a contrast between slavery and freedom. It's not a contrast between slavery to God's law and the freedom to sin. It's not a contrast between slavery to God and your autonomy as a person. The contrast is a contrast between masters. Verse, chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey. There's no middle ground here. There's no neutrality. There's no autonomy. You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Two paths, two masters, two ways of walking, two destinations. Do you see? Paul sets before us as God did with Israel. He sets before us life and death. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Will you walk according to the flesh or will you turn to faith in Christ and walk according to the spirit? Which master has dominion over you? Which master will have dominion? Will the flesh lead you down the broad road to destruction? That's the road that everybody else is on. Will your flesh lead you down an easy path to destruction and to death and to hell? Or will the Spirit lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake? Now, we don't walk in righteousness in order to earn that salvation. We don't 
walk in righteousness to earn life by the Spirit. But righteousness, righteousness is the path. Righteousness is the manner of walk for those who have been given life by the Spirit. To the one who has been set upon a path of life by the Spirit, that one walks according to the Spirit. Do you see? It's not that his walk earns him heaven. That walk is manifest of one who is headed to heaven already, justified, having peace with God, reconciled to him. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Luke 11, verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He'll give the Spirit to those who ask him. So the Christian then, the Christian must not walk according to or in a manner that conforms to the desires of the flesh. The Christian must walk according to or in a manner that conforms to the life of the Spirit. The flesh is not our standard of conduct. The Spirit is our standard or principle of conduct. It is this manner of walking. Think with me now. It's this manner of walking that distinguishes those who have the Spirit from those who do not. It's this manner of walking that distinguishes the Christian from the lost zombie man. Chapter 8, verse 9. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he can only walk according to the Spirit if he has the Spirit. Right? If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In other words, it's the manner of walking that distinguishes those who have the Spirit and those who have the Spirit are those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Through his Spirit will give life to your mortal bodies. Verse 12, chapter 8, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We're not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led, as many as walk along the path by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What path are you on? Who is your master? Who is winning out? <laughs> what does your walk look like? The manner in which we are to walk. If you're in Jesus Christ, the manner in which we are to walk is according to the Spirit. Is according to that standard, that governing principle, that regulating rule. We're to walk according to the standard of conduct prescribed by the Spirit of God. That's the manner of our walk. What then is the purpose or the goal of our walking? Verse 4. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. We considered this purpose clause last week. And we looked at that purpose clause in relationship to verse 3. But now we see this purpose clause again in verse 4 this week as the aim for which we walk in the Spirit. Do you see the connection? We walk according to the Spirit so that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is the aim? What is the goal of our journey? What are you aiming at? Where are you walking? <laughs> Here in eight, chapter 8, verse 4, the aim of our journey is not heaven. Not here in chapter 8, verse 4. Our aim is obedience. 
obedience and fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law. That journey that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, that journey is a progressive series of steps taken in the strength and the power and the supply of the Spirit. As we walk along that journey in accord with or conforming to life in the Spirit, according to that principle of conduct, that journey is a progressive series of steps taken according to the Spirit toward fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. That progressive journey, we're to walk in the will of the Spirit or in accord with the will of the Spirit. So, so where is that journey then taking us? We're progressing in obedience, progressing that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Where is that journey taking us? That journey, that path, brothers and sisters, is taking us toward perfect conformity to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. That journey is our sanctification. It's our sanctification. And listen, chapter 8, look at verse 29. Chapter 8, verse 29, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the manner in which you walk, the purpose for which you walk is of staggering importance. Staggering importance. Critical to the Christian life. Vital that we understand how it is that we walk, where it is that we're walking, who it is that we're walking with and by. <laughs> Critical to the Christian life. And these truths, understanding these things, should encourage us to pursue that walk with diligence, with zeal, with joy, with hope, with endurance, perseverance, long-suffering, faith. Very important, isn't it? How do we do it? Third, how do we do it? What then is the means, the manner, the purpose, now the means? What then is the means by which we pursue a Christian walk in submission to the power and direction of the Spirit? When we consider the means, it would certainly be right to think of progress through the means of grace. We've used that term many times here. If you've been here with us any length of time, you know you've heard us use that term before, means of grace, a means of grace. God blesses his people through means. One of the brothers said earlier, uh, God doesn't merely sovereignly decree the ends. God sovereignly decrees the means through which those ends are accomplished. And there are means of grace which serve the Christian to accomplish their sanctification. They are the means through which God grows us. So it'd certainly be right to consider this question of means in thinking about means of grace. For example, sitting under the preaching of God's word is a means of grace. God uses that to grow and mature and to sanctify his people. We cannot take it for granted. It is a valuable, precious means of grace. And not just sitting under the word, sitting under the word preached in the corporate gathering of God's people. Something we do Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and during the week sitting under the preaching of God's word in the corporate gathered assembly of God's people. The fellowship of God's people is a means of grace. Your personal study of God's word, a means of grace. Meditating on God's word, hiding God's word in your heart, applying God's word. As we learned from James this morning, prayer is a very important means of grace. These means, absolutely necessary, absolutely critical 
for you if you're going to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh and so fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. I would submit to you, if you're not availing yourself of those means of grace, you're not going to be walking according to the Spirit and you're not going to be fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. Why? Because God has appointed the means through which those things will be accomplished. Do you see? The means of grace, they become critical. They're absolutely necessary. You will not walk according to the Spirit apart from the diligent employment of the means, those means of grace. But in our text, that's not where Paul takes us. It's interesting. That's not where Paul takes us. Rather than focusing on the specific means whereby we may experience a walk that is in accord with the life of the Spirit, Paul chooses rather to emphasize the heart attitude or the mindset of the one who would be certain to use them. You see what Paul's doing. Rather than focusing on the specific means, Paul is focusing on the mindset or on the heart attitude of the one who would be certain to employ those means. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh or walk according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live or walk according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The critical issue for Paul is where you set your mind. Where you set your mind. The verb there is present active, meaning that it's not conceived of as a single action in the past, but rather it is a present, active, ongoing action in the succession of moments that make up your life. In the succession of moments that make up your life, you are present, active, ongoing, setting your mind on the things of the flesh, or you are setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Dr. Murray, helpful here. To have your mind set on the flesh is to have the things of the flesh as the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affections, and purpose. Interesting, isn't it? To have your mind set on the things of the flesh is to have the things of the flesh as the absorbing objects. Those things of the flesh that you have your mind set on, they are the absorbing objects. They absorb your thoughts, your interests, your affections, and your purpose. It is in the language of verse 6 to be carnally minded. What Paul's referring to here is a disposition. It is a mindset. It's an attitude, a heart attitude. It is that disposition or that heart attitude, not merely referring to your reason or not merely referring to the way in which you think, but also to your feelings, your emotions, your desires, your preferences, your will. Those faculties, the faculty, those members, right? Those faculties of your nature are patterned after, patterned after, they bend toward, long for, ultimately controlled by the flesh, if you are walking according to the flesh, to be carnally minded. Now, in like manner, think with me, in like manner, to have your mind set upon the things of the Spirit is to have the things of the Holy Spirit as the absorbing objects of your thoughts, your interests, your affections, and your purpose. 
to have the things of God, the things of the Spirit, which occupy your attention, which occupy your desires, your affections, your imaginations, your heart. It is, in the language of verse 6, to be spiritually minded. Now, that also refers to a disposition or a heart attitude. That disposition, that heart attitude, not merely referring to the way that you think or your reasoning, but referring also to your feelings, your emotions, your affections, your desires, your preferences, your will. Those faculties, those faculties are patterned after. They are bent toward, they long for, pine for, hunger and thirst for, ultimately are controlled by the Spirit. Do you see the contrast between the two? There is a, a causal relationship then introduced between verse 5 and verse 6. Consistently set your mind on the things of the flesh and you become, verse 6, carnally minded. Consistently set your mind on the things of the Spirit and you become, verse 6, spiritually minded. You see? What is absorbing your thoughts? What are the objects that absorb your attention, absorb your focus, absorb your desires, absorb your imaginations? What is it? What occupies your time? What do you find yourself most thinking of? What do you desire? Each of those spiritual conditions those conditions of heart, that disposition, that mindset, each of those spiritual conditions bears fruit. Verse six, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Either lawlessness leading to more lawlessness or righteousness leading to life and peace and joy. Notice carefully, Paul concerns himself with our mindset he concerns, concerns himself with our disposition, our heart attitude, rather than emphasizing the specific means of grace. Rather than that, Paul emphasizes our attitude, our mindset. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because, brothers and sisters, if our heart is right, if our mind is right, if our attitude is right, if we are thinking rightly, then our actions will follow. If you think biblically, actions will follow. What you know, we go back to this all the time here, don't we? All the time. What you know, how you think, what you believe will have an impact on how you live your life. Doctrine leads to life. We need to know him through his word. We need to know what the word of God says. You need to understand this good doctrine. Let it sink from the, the 18 inches from your gray matter to your heart. <laughs> let it sink in there and let it change, transform the way that you live. How you think impacts what you believe and who you believe in, and that will impact how you live your life. It can't, it, it, there's no other way. <laughs> You're going to set your things on the, uh, set your mind on the things of the flesh and therefore you're going to walk after the flesh, or you're going to set your, thing, your mind on the things of the Spirit, and you're going to walk after the Spirit. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. You'll be a slave to one or the other, so to speak. It's going to have an impact on how you live. Now, what does this mean for you and I? How are we to apply, then, what Paul is saying here? How do we apply it? Well, think. 
what is absorbing your thoughts, what is absorbing your time, your feelings, your preferences, your interests, your affections. Is it the things of the Spirit? Can you say, with life and death earnestness, with God as your witness, can you say that what occupies your thoughts, your time, your feelings, your preferences, your interests, your affections, is what occupies you? Is it the things of the Spirit? If so, if that's true, then you'll be consistently, diligently employing the means of grace and walking according to the Spirit, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. See the connection between the two? If that's true, you take an an honest and earnest self-examination of where you're at, and if you are occupied with the things of the Spirit, if that's what is absorbing your thoughts, so to speak, then you're going to be. Paul knows this in Romans chapter 8, verses 4, 5, 6. You'll be consistently, diligently employing the means of grace and walking according to the, the Spirit, and walking according to the Spirit, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, being conformed into the image of Christ. Glory. However, however, if you are faltering in those means, if you are faltering in the employment of those means, and isn't it true that we all falter? We all falter. We're not speaking of sinless perfection here. We're speaking of direction. We're not speaking of sinless perfection. We're speaking of habit. If you are faltering in the employment of those means, if you are inconsistent in the use of those means, if you are negligent in the means of grace, it means that your thoughts, your time, your feelings, your preferences, your interests, your affections are preoccupied. They are being absorbed by the things of the flesh. One of the two. And you are setting your mind on the things of the flesh. And to be fleshly minded, carnally minded, is death. That path brings forth fruit to death. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ is. Set your mind on him. He is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, because you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul is referring to a mindset that governs or regulates the involvement of our faculties a mindset that governs or regulates the use of our members to either pursue righteousness or unrighteousness, to either set our minds on the things of the Spirit or to set our minds on the things of the flesh. And if we set our minds upon the things of the Spirit, then the Spirit will occupy our thoughts, our attentions, our focus. Do you see? Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Look there, Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Do not present your members. Do not present the faculties of your nature 
do not present them as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but rather present yourselves, present your faculties, present your members as being alive from the dead, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, and your members, the faculties of your soul, as instruments of righteousness to God. How is it that we may consistently and faithfully do that, which Paul is calling us to do in Romans chapter 6, verse 13? How do we do it? We set our mind on the things of the Spirit. Those who live according to the Spirit are those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And to be spiritually minded, verse 6, is life and peace. Prior to your conversion, you would confess, as I would, that we had no power to do that. We, we, we found that to be a futile effort. I could never understand why, right? For me, I grew up in easy believism. So if I had said that prayer once, I'd said it a hundred times just to be certain. I mean it this time, Lord, I mean it, you know, but could never understand why my life continued to be the same cesspool of sin that it was year after year after year after year after year. It's because apart from the spirit, you have no strength to do any of this. Apart from the Spirit, you can't set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You continue dead in trespasses and sins, dead. You continue to set your things on the, set your mind on the things of the flesh. And it's just a, a repetitive pattern. It's a habit. We're talking about a habit. Time in, time out, day after day, one day after the other, you set your mind on the things of the flesh. Why? Because you are, by nature, a child of wrath. You are, by nature, carnally minded. But Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, Jesus Christ not only died to pay the penalty that you deserve because of your sins, whereby you are forgiven of all your sins, praise God, but Jesus Christ, chapter 6, verse 10, also died to sin once for all. He died to the power of sin that sin would no longer have any dominion over you, that your relationship to indwelling sin, remaining corruption, is broken. The power of sin, broken. What does that mean? That means you can choose to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Praise God. You have power by the Spirit to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You don't have to continue in that habit, that pattern that you once walked in after the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You don't have to do that any longer. You don't have to fulfill the lusts of your flesh. You can, in the power of the Spirit, set your mind upon the things of the Spirit and walk according to the Spirit, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. You've been delivered. <laughs> from that slavery, you have been delivered to a glorious liberty. A liberty whereby you are in the spirit, you are free to choose, free to set your mind on the things of the spirit and walk according to the spirit. It is a great salvation. It not only changes your status, it doesn't merely change the judicial sentence that had been passed against you by the law, it transforms your life. It will 
change how you live. How is that done? It is done by faith in Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. You're not going to do that in your own strength. So set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And it's not like, okay, I'm going to try right now. I'm trying. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. That's not how you do it. You do it through the means of grace. You set your mind on the things of the Spirit by allowing the things of the Spirit to absorb your thoughts, your time, your energy, right? Your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your imaginations, your affections, your joy, your faith. Let the things of the Spirit absorb you and you will walk according to the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So Paul has been talking about Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 8. Listen now, listen. Those who continue to satisfy the lust of the flesh, which, brother, sister, if we're being honest with ourselves, we all do at some point. That's Paul in Romans 7 also, isn't it? The very things that I will to do, that I do not do. Those who continue to satisfy the lusts of the flesh, those who continue to feed the desires of our flesh, feed their corrupt, their remaining corruption, their indwelling sin, as that indwelling sin seeks to exert its influence over you, they manifest a disposition of mind that regards that principle in their members it regard, it's a disposition of mind that regards that desire of the flesh as an allowable or even as an acceptable standard of conduct whereby they may walk. See what, that, what I'm saying there, right? They esteem that standard of conduct more than they esteem the law of God and God's right, God's authority, God's sovereignty over us. They esteem that standard more highly. And it is through that disposition of mind, the disposition of mind that esteems your rotting flesh, your remaining corruption, your indwelling sin. It's the disposition of mind that esteems that filthy thing higher than the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God the payment that Christ, the cost that was paid at the cross to redeem you, you esteem this more than you esteem that. That's the truth. And that, let that sink in, right? Allow the Lord to break your heart over that, right? Our remaining corruption, our remaining sin. It's a filthy thing. And those who continue to satisfy the lust of the flesh to feed the desires of their remaining corruption, they are manifesting the disposition of mind that esteems that more than God's law. And it is through that disposition of mind, how vile that is, it is through that disposition of mind that they then engage their members. They employ the faculties of their soul in satisfaction or in the service of their flesh. That, brothers and sisters, will bring forth death. If you continue along that path, making that a habit, that brings forth death. To be carnally minded is death. 
but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And again, not a reference to sinless perfection, not even a reference to, to isolated incidents here. What Paul is referencing is, a, is the habitual disposition of mind that leads to a habitual pattern of conduct. It is a life that represents the easy and broad way to destruction. Why is it easy? It is so easy just to let yourself go, isn't it? If you stop striving, think of all the, the metaphors used in Scripture of what our Christian life is to be, right? Striving against sin, running a race as a soldier employed in battle, as a farmer. Farmers work hard. <laughs> how many, how many metaphors do we see in Scripture for the diligence with which we are to pursue the Christian life? Why? Why? Because if you pursue the Christian life in a sluggardly way, or as, as soon as you stop exerting a great effort, you start going backwards. You're on a very slippery slope. There is an enemy within you that seeks to exert dominion over you. And as soon as you stop scrambling up the hill, you're sliding back down it, right? Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean that you reach a point on the hill and now you have struggled against the flesh and you've lost, and now you slide all the way back down to the bottom, and you've got to start the whole thing over again, climbing back. No. Praise God. It doesn't mean that. You may slide, but you immediately get back on the horse. <laughs> you start running back up the hill again. Um, it doesn't mean you're all the way back at the bottom. By faith in Jesus Christ, in the power of his spirit, not in our own power, we're going to continue making progress. It may not be a line that looks like this, it may be a line that looks like that, but it's going that direction. Do you see? <laughs> Praise God. What Paul is pointing to in verse 6 is both. By carnally minded, Paul refers to the disposition of mind that is, and it's, he's, he's referring to both the disposition of mind and its subsequent fruit. To be carnally minded brings forth sin, and the wages of sin is death. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. To be spiritually minded brings forth holiness, leading to life and peace. It is the path walked by those who have already been justified through faith and reconciled to God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Two contrasting paths, two contrasting standards, two contrasting desires, two contrasting wills, two contrasting masters, two contrasting aims, right? two contrasting affections, two contrasting hopes, two contrasting destinations, two ways, two groups, two destinations. You're on a journey. What's it going to be? <laughs> All comes down to your mindset. Paul says, your, your disposition, your heart attitude. Once again, we find that doctrine here, and this is, this is meaty doctrine, right? We, we've been working through, the, through Romans, and we've talked about some, some Paul's very tightly woven arguments. This is meaty stuff. But that doctrine is intensely practical. You have got to get it. You've got to apprehend it by faith and live according to it. How you think 
what you believe has everything to do with how you live and where you go. The manner of our walk must be according to the Spirit. The purpose of our walk is that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law and be gloriously conformed into the image of his own Son. The means by which we are to walk is by setting our minds upon the things of the Spirit, allowing the things of the Spirit to absorb everything that we are, choosing to allow our affections, our thoughts, our emotions, our will, and our actions to be consumed with the things of the Spirit. For, brothers and sisters, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. All praise, honor, and glory to the one who preserves us and sanctifies us. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. God, uh, thank you for these these precious truths. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for revealing these to us, helping us to think through them. Spirit of God, uh, give us understanding. Uh, Help us, Lord, to think clearly about these things, to mull them over in our minds, to, to meditate on them. And Lord, Cause us to be absorbed with them, consumed with them. Cause us to apprehend them by your spirit that we might, as we walk, as we live this life and we make choices, decisions in each of those succession of moments that we would choose to be driven by, absorbed by the things of the spirit rather than to be consumed by the things of the flesh. Thank you, Lord, for this exhortation, for the command. Thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to imagine or think for a moment that this is something to be done in our own strength. Thank you, God, that you have given us of your spirit. You've given us everything that we need, all, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and I pray, Lord, that with those blessings, you would cause us to ride on your high hills, a walk after the Spirit, uh, being conformed into the image of the Son, and that it would be to your glory, to your everlasting praise and worship. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.